read a story this week taken from a book called The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, written by a man named John Dixon. And he, he writes about his introduction to the Christian faith. I wanted to share this with you. It's such a great story. He says, Under God, my own conversion was the result of one person's willingness to embody the mission of the friend of sinners. One of the relics, he's Australian, he says, one of the relics of Australia's Christian heritage is the once-a-week scripture lesson that is offered in many state high schools around the country. One of these scripture teachers, Brenda was her name, had the courage to invite my entire class to her home for discussions about God. The invitation would have gone unnoticed, except that she added, if anyone gets hungry, I'll be making hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones. Well, as I looked around the room at all my friends, all skeptics like me, I was amazed that this woman would open her home and her kitchen to us. Some of the lads were among the worst sinners in our school. One was a drug user and seller. One was a class clown and a bully, one was a petty thief with a string of breaking and entering charges to his credit. I could not figure Brenda out. She was wealthy and intelligent. She had an exciting social life married to a leading Australian businessman. What was she thinking inviting us over for a meal and discussion? At no point was this teacher pushy or preachy. Her style was completely relaxed and incredibly generous. When her VCR went missing one day, she made almost nothing of it, even though she suspected, quite reasonably, that it was someone from our group. For me, her open, flexible, generous attitude toward us sinners was the doorway into a life of faith. As we ate and drank and talked, it was clear this was no missionary ploy on her part. She truly cared for us. And she treated us like friends, or perhaps more accurately, like sons. As a result, over the course of the next year, she introduced several of us from the class to the ultimate friend of sinners, Jesus. I love that. I read a story like that, and and something just grabs my heart. I just love to hear the the stories of, of new life. I love to hear stories of God doing what only God can do. Life transformation, redeeming lost people, rescuing them back into the relationship for which they were created. But I have to say that I think the hero in the story is Brenda. The hero is God, of course. But the heroine is Brenda. I love his statements about her, how he couldn't figure her out, He was amazed that she would open her home to them, that she truly cared about them and treated them like friends, like sons, and that it was her open and flexible and generous attitude that that led them to the path of life. So, just to get us going in the right direction this morning, tell me the first thing that you think of when I say this word. Okay, you ready? Witness. Testimony. Protection program. You know, to a certain degree, that is a part of it. 
witness. Family. Somebody who's seen something. Okay. Sharing. Now let's... Say, what was that one? Court. Yeah. For some of us, that word makes us a little nervous. To witness. To witness carries with it, at least for some of us, that, that sense of speaking about something that I know, speaking about someone that I know. It's a word that, that we're familiar with, certainly from Scripture. It's a word that, uh, that we think that we know pretty well, one that's often used in the New Testament, and it is defined at its root as a person who gives testimony to something that they know or something that they have seen. And, and my guess would be that probably one of the most familiar texts that we would read that word in is found in Acts 1. You remember just before Jesus ascended to the Father, told his followers that they would be his witnesses. They would witness of him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, now here's another question for you. Any of you have any idea of what that original word means in the language of the New Testament? You ever heard this? Say again. Martyr. Exactly, Sue. Sue gets an A. Greek student Sue over here. It is. The word is martyr, and it just happens to sound like our English word, martyr. And that's where we get the word. But here's the thing. At the time that Jesus spoke those words to his followers, except for John the Baptist, Scripture doesn't record for us any deaths as a result of being his witnesses. But it wouldn't be long after he spoke those words that Stephen would be stoned. And then following Stephen's death, we know that intense persecution broke out. Acts 8 tells us that on that day, the death of Stephen, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered. And guess where they went? We're told that they went into Judea and Samaria. And so it began. What's the first thing that you think of when you hear the word martyr? Death. Exactly. What's interesting is that when Jesus told his followers that they would be his witnesses, that word, at least in that era, as best we can tell, was probably not associated with suffering and death. It's one of those words that kind of morphs and changes over time. But it wasn't too long as the church began to grow, they began to understand that to be a witness, to be a martyr in the Greek language, was to put one's life on the line for what they believed. Any of you ever heard of the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs? Now there's some happy reading. That is... 
often. So, Jesus told his followers that they would be his witnesses into the world. Let me read you the words that came just before he said that. Listen closely. Do not leave Jerusalem, is what he told them, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Spirit of God would come upon them, indwelling and empowering them to become witnesses for Jesus, so that they would live their lives giving testimony to the love of God that had been made known to them through Jesus Christ. And they would eventually die doing the same thing, giving testimony to that. So as we have been journeying through this series together, this series of imagining, I've asked you, repeatedly to to imagine what your life, what our life together as God's people would look like if we really lived out what we as God's people say that we believe. If we were really earnest about living out the truth that is foundational to our faith. We spent several Sundays looking at the love of God, exploring what the Scripture teaches us about the love of God with the hope of better understanding the love of God because the truth claim of the Christian faith is that God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. Sent His only Son into that world to be the Savior of those who would put their faith, their trust, their belief in him and and we understand at least i hope a little better that the reason that jesus had to die for people is because they were not nice folks in their sin nature they were rebels against the one who had made them for himself and and god did this outrageous thing he sent his son to take their place sacrificed his own perfect son in order to redeem lost, rebellious people and bring them into his family. That is crazy. What kind of God is this? What kind of God does that? Scripture teaches us that our God does that. And remember, this will always be, I think, one of the greatest stumbling blocks to us in really understanding the amazing mystery of God's love to us is because we don't think we're that bad. Don't forget that. Just write that down. Someday I hope it comes back to haunt you. We just don't think we're that bad. We can think of people who are that bad. We can think of people groups who are that bad. And so we can always elevate ourselves just a bit when we're thinking of those who do the really naughty things in life 
And therefore, we minimize the grace of God, the amazing love of God, because we are using the wrong standard. Okay, I know, you've heard me say that ad nauseum. Just don't forget it, okay? All right. If we, as God's people, can insist in our discipline to open our lives to the truth of what God wants to teach us about Himself and His love through the power of the Spirit in us, if we are willing to put ourselves out there and believe and live like we really believe that this is true, fabulous news, then our lives will look different than those who do not believe that. Does that not make sense? Because suddenly God and His place in our lives will be more important than anything else. And that's where we have been striving to get to. What would our lives look like? Well, for sure, it would look like to those who know us and watch our lives that God and His place is more important than anything else. And we live our lives with this sense of indebtedness to this amazing, outrageous, loving God. We don't live like we have to repay Him. We need to be cautious of that. We've talked about that. But we will live like we are indebted to Him for what He's done because we are. Are you guys awake? Okay, just checking. I didn't hear any snoring, but it looked like you were drifting in that direction. Okay. So the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 calls this a living sacrifice. That's where we've been for the last two or three weeks. It's a living witness to the glory of God, to the weightiness of God. It, it, is, it is a martyr. Remember, that's a, that's a witness, someone who gives testimony. It is a martyr that has not died physically, but one who lives each day as dead to self and alive to God. And that's one of the other great stumbling blocks or threats or challenges to us is that there is something in us, just the, the remnants of the sin nature that is just struggling to survive, wants to make me important, wants to make you important. Because when we are important, God is less important. And so that sin nature is always there, always crying out to us to take care of self, to exalt self, to put oneself forward to get what we deserve. Thank God that we don't get what we deserve. So we said last week that the distinguishing mark of a living sacrifice is a life that is lived in such a way that it points to the very big and all-important presence of God. Remember? That is the distinguishing mark. A person who lives as a daily sacrifice lives as if life is not about them because life is not about them. They understand that life is about God and they are striving always to keep God at the center of everything that they think and everything that they do. That's the distinguishing mark. One. 
there's a second distinguishing mark of a living sacrifice. And this one, this one I'm going to say is, is second in importance, but, but I almost hate to say that because in our minds, or at least in my mind, then I will, I'll sort of relegate it down to a place where it really shouldn't be. But I think you'll see why we have to say that it's the second distinguishing mark, um, and yet it's one that was very important to Jesus. And we're going to read his words this morning from, from Matthew's Gospel. So let's stand together and um, let's read this account of a conversation that Jesus had with, uh, with a young man. Let's read together. Here we go. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So, Jesus says that all the law and the prophets can be summed up in these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have and Love your neighbor as yourself. So here's your neighbor question this morning. Turn to someone and ask them, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? What does it mean? Piece of cake, right? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Okay, we ready? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? What does your neighbor think that that means? Voluntarily doing what's best for the neighbor. Okay. What else? Okay. I am my favorite person. Yes, yes. Does that strike you as outrageous? That if we thought about others as much as we think about ourselves, what would my life look like? That's almost scary to think about that. Excellent observation. Good word. (laughs) Anyone else? Ah, I couldn't agree more. Tell me again, we've read somewhere, Jesus told his disciples to wait for something. What was it that they were waiting for? There it is. You're right, Mike. We cannot possibly do that in our humanity. It is the Spirit of God that lives in us, that empowers us to be obedient to that kind of, of a command. I'd just rather stand outside of their life and throw stones or maybe money. Okay, I'm sorry, that was really cynical. I would never think that of you. <laughs> but uh-huh. I think that that is why this is the second distinguishing mark. It can only flow out of the first distinguishing mark that we are working at understanding and opening ourselves to the power of God's Spirit, putting God on the throne of our lives, central to our thinking and our activities and, and all that we do. It's, it's only when we have that right that, that this kind of love that Jesus is talking about 
will, will come out of us for others. Luke's gospel records a similar discussion. You may remember there was an expert of the law who asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus asked him, he said, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the young man answered with the text that we read together this morning in Matthew. He said, well, you got to love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, bingo! Well, he didn't say bingo, but that was the sense. Jesus said, you got it. Do this and live. Now, I think the man understood what Jesus was saying because Luke adds this little sentence that says, wanting to justify himself, he asked a clarifying question, who is my neighbor? I mean, you could just almost feel the wheels spinning in his head in that text because he understands the import of what Jesus is driving at and he's pretty sure that he hasn't been measuring up to that because he's picking and choosing his neighbors. Well, who is my neighbor? Uh, we might add something like, well, who qualifies as my neighbor? Yeah, come on, Jesus, am I supposed to love everyone? And of course, that's when Jesus told the story that most of us know pretty well. The story of the Samaritan. He was the hero in the story because he broke all of the cultural and societal expectations and he showed great care for someone who was obviously in need. You know, and it's interesting to me that we often call him the good Samaritan. Some Bibles even give that heading over the text. Jesus never calls him good. He simply called him a Samaritan. And that, of course, was the point of the story. It was salt in the wound of the man who was asking the question and he was concerned that maybe he was not loving all of the people that he should or the way that he should. You remember in the eyes of the first century Jew, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. The only good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan in the opinion of the Jews of the first century. But, but in that story, Jesus tells us that it was the Samaritan that got it right. It wasn't the esteemed religious folks, the keepers of the law, the students of the law, the ones who advocated a life of righteousness. What did the Samaritan do? You remember the story? Took care of a need that was right in front of him, and he didn't justify his way out of it. He came across a man who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead, and he did for that man what he would have wanted someone to do for him had he been in that situation. He helped him at his point of need. I think when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying that those who have been loved by God and in response to that love are giving themselves to making God the center of everything that they have and do, every thought, every motion, every activity, then they are going to demonstrate that love to those around them as they have experienced that love. And, and that is, in fact, what, what some of you observed. It's, it's difficult for us to, to love 
in the way that we have been loved. We are quick to make judgments. We are quick to make decisions. We are quick to write folks off. We are certainly, I am certainly quick to excuse myself for not loving in a certain situation. I suggested to you last Sunday that being a living sacrifice is all about surrender. We've always got to think surrender when we talk about living sacrifice. It's about asking the Spirit of God who lives in God's children to take over everything, every part of our lives. There's nothing that is not His, and there is no place in our thinking or our activities where He does not belong. But remember, I also cautioned you too. Be careful with this. Don't make this into, I've got to work harder for God. I've got to do more for God. That is not the point. God does not need anything that I can do. This is about thinking correctly about who God is and thinking clearly and correctly about what He has done for me and who I am because of what He has done. I am a child of the living God. You are children of the living God through nothing that we did. And in response to that, in response to that, in my best moments when I get that I want to surrender everything that I am, and all that I have to Him. Asking the Spirit of God to produce in me a life that demonstrates that very reality of what I say I believe. And if we're serious about that, the Spirit will begin to grow in us a greater concern for God's priorities than for our own. And that's what it really comes down to, is we as living sacrifices are going to live our lives as if God's priorities, as if God's agenda is more important than my own. That's what the unredeemed never do. They never consider that God's priorities might be more important than their own. When we surrender to the Spirit's control, to his leading, the priorities of God will become more and more focused of our lives. And, and I think those priorities, simply put, there are two. God's number one priority is to make his glory known in all of creation. God doesn't apologize for who he is. God doesn't feel like he needs to draw back from who he is. God never has that sense of, well, I shouldn't interrupt them, they're busy. God is God, and God's priority is to make himself known in all of creation because all of creation was made for him, and there is nothing better for the creation that he made than the one who made it. There is no life apart from God. There is no deep soul satisfaction, only temporary happiness until we need to move on to something else to make us happy. The only thing that satisfies the longing of our souls is the one who created our souls. Are you with me? I love the way that that Francis Chan speaks to this. I know I've read from his book several times. This is absolutely one of the greatest books that I have read. And so much of it just seems to kind of track along with where we've been. But... uh, But Chan says this, he says, Nowhere in Scripture do I see a balanced life with a little bit of God added in as an ideal for us to emulate. And yet, he says, when I look at our churches, this is exactly what I see. A lot of people who have added Jesus to their lives, people who have, in a sense, asked him to join them on their life journey, to follow them where they feel they should go rather than following him as we are commanded. 
The God of the universe is not something that we can just add to our lives and keep on as we did before. The Spirit who raised Christ from the dead is not someone we can just call on when we want a little extra power in our lives. Jesus Christ did not die in order to follow us. He died and rose again so that we could forget everything else and follow him to the cross in life. He's so right. And that's what we're talking about. Daily life is living sacrifices, following Jesus. The significance of following him becomes so important that making him big and making us small becomes more and more part of the way that we think. And the natural result of that is that we're going to be more and more those who are committed to loving people as we love ourselves. You know, when Jesus told that young man that all of the law and the prophets can be summed up in two commands, love God, love your neighbor, he was really, really rocking their world. It's just huge. There are over 600 commandments in the law. And among the religious leaders of the day, those commandments were just a constant source of study and, and debate. It was a question of determining the greater and the lesser laws. What's really important? What's not as important? A person only has so much time in a day, so what do they really need to pay attention to? What's the bottom line? And I think that is, in part, what is behind this man's question. How can I make sure, out of all those laws, that I'm giving myself to what is really the most important thing? And Jesus just quickly sums it up. Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the ultimate life activity of a, of a living sacrifice. <laughs> the, the, the sermon title popped into my head this week. It's a living summary A living sacrifice is a living summary. According to Jesus, this is exactly what we are called to. It's a summary statement of what is important to God. We live with great love for him, and we live with great love for other people. It is a a love for others as we love ourselves. I like the statements about, about thinking about where folks are putting ourselves into their lives. To love our neighbor as we love ourselves is not a statement about the importance of loving self. It's something we do quite naturally. It's a statement about meeting people at their point of need. We must remember that that God saved us so that we could have him. God saved us so that we could have him. He saved us not to give us goodies, but to give us himself. And nor did he save us to improve our lives. He saved us to change our lives. He saved us because of love, and out of that love, he filled us with his spirit so that our lives would be lived in his power and not our own power. The reason that that becomes even more important is when we consider more seriously this second command that is also a part of summing up all the law and the prophets to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. When we lay ourselves on the altar of sacrifice for the sake of others, it is for what reason? 
so that they'll think well of us, so that they'll think we're good people. We lay ourselves on the altar of sacrifice for the sake of others so that they can experience the love and the presence of God in us. doesn't matter a hoot what they think of us or how they respond to us. Maybe I should say it shouldn't matter a hoot. What they think of us, how they respond to us, that's God's problem. We are simply being vessels of his love that flows through us. Next Sunday, we're going to look more closely as we wrap up this series about what I think are some real practical applications of this truth. Because I don't know where you live your life, but I live my life with a lot of excuses. And sometimes those excuses even come under that heading of, well, you know, God understands that. And then I give the excuse of, why I don't love others as I love myself. I don't think God understands. I don't think his spirit was put into our lives to understand. His spirit was put into our lives to change us. His spirit was put into our lives to radically transform us and to give us the power to live lives that make people in this world go, wow, that's different. That's like nothing that I have ever seen. Passionate love for God. Passionate love for God that is so intense and so deep and so powerful that this individual has very little regard for themselves. And they give to others constantly. We'll wrestle with some hard questions. And we'll end with communion together next Sunday, which is where we started the series. In view of God's mercy. Remember those words? Romans 12. In view of God's mercy. And we look at the table and it reminds us, oh yeah, this is what God did. And it becomes a reason for us to constantly ask, how am I living? In light of what God did and in light of the priorities that I know are his for my life. So, praise team, come on up. And as they come, let me ask you to just give some thought to your own life this week. Find some time to just be quiet. Imagine what your life might be like if you gave yourself completely to the two priorities of God. A life-consuming love for him and a love for others that flows out of being consumed by his love. And I'll warn you, and just tell you what your life won't be. It won't be comfortable, and it won't be safe. But, but that's okay, because you'll be in good company the company of Jesus and those who get it.